morning, everybody. It's looking good, sounding good. My name is Dan, and I uh, get the privilege of just being able to open up God's Word with you this morning. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 20. So you can grab a Bible, look at your fridge fold, see some of the things that are going on there as we walk through. Um, probably something that's pretty familiar, the Ten Commandments. This journey of the fierce landscapes is something that we're really looking at the, the people of God, the Israelites, coming, becoming a nation and, and walking through the book of Exodus. And we started out, you know, um, Pastor Eric was teaching and, and Mark was teaching and, and really looking at deliverance from slavery and God's provision. And one of the things we have to really keep in mind as we look at this, you know, we're kind of, we're looking at this journey of Lent as well and our, on, our, on our path to Easter. We're looking at this story of, of fierce landscapes and the, and the children of Israel. And we're looking at these things that we're calling desert spirituality. Desert spirituality. I don't, I don't really know what the desert is in your life. I know what the desert is in my life. I know where, where things look dry. I know when I, when I feel like I'm about to die of thirst. I, I know when it looks like there's nothing around me that's going to sustain me. And then God shows up. I, I know what that feels like. I don't know what the desert is for you. I don't know maybe if, it, if, it's, if it's illness. The desert is just you know, feeling like all of your energy is, is being depleted. Like just living and just surviving and just checking another day off the books is your desert. I don't know if your desert is kind of like the seasons of life, you know, the season of, all right, I'm, we're trying to raise kids here, but there's all these other things that I want to do, and there's all these different ways that, that I used to define myself and used to find my value, and now all of a sudden life is very different, and I've never done this before, and it's so irresponsible for people to let me walk out of the hospital with a baby, and what, what am I going to do? The, the desert, I, I'm... I'm I need some manna from heaven. I need some instruction. I need some wisdom. Maybe your desert is your singleness. Maybe, maybe it's just like that place of, you know what? I, I'm made for a relationship and I want more. And this time of singleness just feels like it's dry. I haven't found out what it's here for yet. There isn't joy. There isn't peace. There isn't hope in my singleness. There's only pining and longing what is this for? What, why, have to, why do I have to go through this desert? Some of you, it's your marriage. <laughs> our marriage can be, can be a desert place. It can be a place where we kind of vie for our needs. A place where we, we, we put these expectations upon our spouse when ultimately God is the one who meets our needs and God's grace is sufficient for us. I don't know what your desert is, but here's what we're talking about. In that place of the desert... God shows up. That place of the desert is a place that, that God wants to bring daily provision. God is in the works of, of making a family. He is in the works of, of building a people, of taking what was nothing, what was simply a, a mass and giving them identity, calling them out of darkness, calling us out of darkness into light. He's calling us to be his family. And in this place of the desert, wherever it is, whether it's singleness or whether it's illness or whether it's marriage or, or whether it's, you know, raising kids or whether it's job loss, whatever that, 
season is, whatever that desert is, God wants to bring forth beauty and hope and joy. And he wants to say to us, guess what? Your circumstances don't define you. I want to give you the ability to overcome. I want to be God with you. We're going to open up in Exodus 20, and I just kind of want to read through this. But in setting this up, I just want to say there's really nothing more important than your relationship with God. There's nothing more important in life than a right relationship with God, than loving God with all of your heart and with all of your mind and with all of your soul and with all of your strength. And what's happening here as we walk up to Exodus chapter 20 is, is the children of Israel have been delivered from Egypt. They live, they live there in that kind of safe cocoon. Remember, they weren't always slaves. They were, they were in a foreign land, that, but they weren't always slaves. They were actually doing very well. Joseph was the second in command in all of Egypt. They went there during a time of famine, and, and they were taken care of, and they were provided for, and they continued there, growing and some people say that at the time of, of, of the deliverance of, of the children of Israel from Egypt, there was about a million of them. About a million people kind of existing within another culture, but having a greater calling on their life, having a promise of, of something more that God had planned for them, a place to go, you know, much like Abraham. God called him, he just called one man and said, hey, come on, Abe, let's go for a walk. Well, where are we going, God? Just, we're going to go for a walk, Abe. Well, I'd really like to have that final address, you know. God, can I just, can you give me the destination? I'd like to push it, punch it into my GPS, and I'd like to be able to see exactly how many miles that we're going to travel. And, and, and I need to kind of plot that out and see how much time that's going to take me. And God, where are we going? Is this, is this north or is this south? Do I, do I need a winter coat? How long is this going to take? Am I going to need some extra shoes? Are they going to have any celebrations, any parties on the way? Do I need to, you know, put in a black tie? We love to plan out. But God just says, I want you to come and I want you to walk with me. I want you to follow me. And when Abe did that, he was called the friend of God. And this is what God's design and his plan for his people is. So the children of Israel grow, Joseph dies, the, the Pharaoh of Egypt dies, a new Pharaoh takes place, and that new Pharaoh and his, and, his, and his advisors are kind of sitting around one day and they're looking out at the people and they're seeing what's going on in their country and they're, you know what? These people, there's a lot of them. They're really strong, they're, they're really powerful. There's actually more of them than there are of us. Like, we need to do something about this. And so they created infanticide. And they called all the midwives together and they said, all right, when the Hebrews give birth, I want you to kill their children. The midwives were not going to do that. And when they didn't do it, then the Egyptians brought them in and said, what's going on? You know, and, they, and they said, oh, th those Hebrew women, they just pop them right out. By the time we get there, they're already done, they're gone, and we can't just like grab them and kill the kids. Like, that's just weird, you know? Like, and they say, well, this is what we're going to do. You won't do it, so we'll do it. We'll go grab the kids. And so they orchestrated an amazing and horrible and atrocious act, collecting young children and simply just throwing them into the Nile River to control population, to begin the process of enslaving and destroying and cutting down the people of God. That's when they started calling out to God. 
Oh, wait a second, God. We're not sitting around the meat pots anymore. We're, we're, we're not hanging out and enjoying all the blessings of this, this wonderful cocoon of Egypt. No, this has just got really bad. And as they cried out to God, God met them. God raised up Moses and God delivered his people. And then God began to walk them through this desert. And day by day, they had to be provided for. They weren't stopping and camping and, and um, you know, pulling out their plows. They didn't have any. They didn't plant crops and kind of watch and observe the seasons and, and plan for their own provision. They had nothing. There are a million people wandering around. And every single day, God had to meet them exactly where they were. His people, you are my people called by my name. You are mine. And I will take care of you. I love you. And so as Pastor Mark shared last week, you know, just the provision for the manna waking up every single morning and having breakfast prepared. And they did that for 40 years. Getting thirsty and, and, and Moses, you know, there's no water anywhere to be seen and Moses just goes and strikes a rock and water, this sweet, wonderful water begins to flow. Wish we could have that in some bottles. I bet it was delicious. God's provision moment by moment, day by day, and then this is what happens because now our story picks up in chapter 19 and chapter 20, and they, they've been wandering in the desert for about three months. There's been about three new moons that have passed, about 90 days. They've been on this spiritual P90X, and here they are. God brings them right to the base of Mount Sinai. He says, all right, throw it in park. We're gonna stay here for a little while, and this is what's gonna happen. I want you to know that in three days, we're gonna have a date. Start primping. And so what happens is he, you know, you've been wandering around in the desert for 90 days here, like go wash your clothes, please, you know, get cleaned up, purify yourself, get your head screwed on straight focus. You've been walking through the desert, you're hot, you're tired, you're worn out, get some rest, focus your mind and your heart on me, put the complaining on hold and know that in three days I am going to meet you and we're going to the next level. See, the, the story of God, the story is, uh, with the Israelites is the same as the story with us. We've all come to a place in our mind, in our heart, where we, where we recognize the need to be within these walls. We recognize the, the need to gather with the people of God. We see something that is attractive. We see something that is, that is powerful. We see something that is different. We see joy and hope and peace and wisdom, and we want it. And there's that moment that we take the step towards and growth begins. And God brings us from redemption into growing and into faith and into knowing him. And then there comes that day where God says, all right, ready to go for the next level. Yes, you know that I love you. And yes, you've, you've seen me show up. You've experienced me. And now I want to give you some more wisdom. Now I want to give you some revelation. We're going to move from just, well, you're a redeemed people. But now we're going to move from redemption to revelation. And the spirit of God descends upon Mount Sinai, this huge cloud of smoke and fire. I don't know if you've ever gone up into the mountains and go up several thousand feet and experience a storm rolling in. You see the dark clouds, 
They're gray, they're thick, you can't see through them around them. You feel like you're just kind of encapsulated in this whirlwind. The thunder starts, the lightning is flashing, and in the midst of that, you feel like you could just stand there on the mountainside and reach your hand out and grab a lightning bolt, and it scares you to death. When you go up several thousand feet, it's no longer just kind of looking up at this storm happening. You're just simply looking out and it's all around you and you're right in the middle of it. And this is what is happening is people of Israel, all of them gathered around this mountain and they're seeing the glory of God descend upon the mountain and there's smoke and there's fire and there's thunderings and flashes of lightnings and they are scared. And then God says, now I want to tell you something. Now I want to give you some wisdom. I want to bring you to the next step of relationship. I want to give you some revelation. I want to show you what life is about. There's nothing more important than our relationship with God. He's creating a family. He's creating us to be salt and light, to be ambassadors in the world. And this is some of the process that he wants us to go through, to wrestle with these very familiar verses, the Ten Commandments. So join me in reading through in Exodus chapter 20. Then God gave the people all these instructions. I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. You must not have any other God but me. You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, And with jealous God, who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected. Even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. You must not misuse the name of the Lord your God. The Lord will not let you go unpunished if you misuse his name. Remember to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. You have six days each week for your ordinary work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest dedicated to the Lord your God. On that day, no one in your household may do any work. This includes you, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, your livestock, and any foreigners living among you. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. But on the seventh day, he rested. That is why the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and set it apart as holy. Honor your father and mother. Then you will live a long, full life in the land of the Lord your God is giving you. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely against your neighbor. You must not covet your neighbor's house. You must not covet your neighbor's wife, male or female servant, ox or donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. So God gives these instructions. You know, we like to sum them up very succinctly and we say, love God and love people, right? These are the greatest commandments. Love God with all of your heart, with all your mind, all your soul and your strength and love your neighbor as you love yourself. In the midst of this, God is is laying out the the process of growth that he wants to to unfold to us. He's giving us this revelation. He's giving us this instruction. He's he's not tinkering. He's building a family. He's building ambassadors. He's not just kind of playing around. Well, consider this. No, he's saying, if you're going to be my people, these are the things that you're going to do. 
I'm God. I'm a jealous God. Now, one of the things that when we do, you look at jealousy, and, and in our context, jealousy is not a good thing, right? I mean, jealousy is something that destroys relationships. Jealousy, jealousy is something that, that we feel controlled when we're under someone else's jealousy. When you experience and you feel jealousy, you feel like the person that you're jealous for, you never get enough. You're always starving. You always want more of them. It's a double-edged sword. Either way, it, it kills. But when we talk about the jealousy of God, we have to be very careful not to humanize God. Jealousy is not a bad thing when we talk about God. God is saying, I'm a jealous God. I'm, I, I desire relationship with you, and you were made for relationship with me. You shouldn't, you shouldn't use your being for anything other than relationship with me. Everything that you do should flow out of that. Everything that we do should flow out of this experience of who God is. And we look at that and we, we look at God and we go, all right, well, God, that's kind of uh, your jealous God. I shouldn't have anyone else but you. It's pretty exclusive. You know, God, that, that's pretty arrogant. Sometimes we might humanize God and we might say, oh, that's arrogant because he says he's the best. Well, he's the bomb. <laughs> I mean, he's, he's the best. He's, he, he's the most good. He's all-powerful. Every single decision that he has ever made and will ever made, make in our context is going to be right, is going to be good, is going to be true, is going to stand forever. So it's not arrogant, it's just simply true. But these are the things that happen with us and lead us directly into this next commandment because God knows the way that our minds and our beings work. He knows that we're just dust and he knows that when we start thinking about these things, no, wait a second, God, you're all that. Wait a second, God, you're, you're the best. I can only worship you. That he knows that the very next thing that happens is that we wrestle with our desire for the physical, for the tangible, for the natural. We, we have this tendency to create idols. There's this gap that exists between, well, God is spiritual and the law is spiritual. And there's these tangible things that we need to do. And I want a tangible God. We experience it when we come in here. We experience it, you know, we walk in. And there's a certain way that we want to encounter God. I'm looking around and I see that many of you are sitting in the exact same seats that you usually sit in. Why is that? What is this comfort that we try to create? Sometimes we, we go about it and, and it's, it's almost a very superstitious kind of thing. You know, we, we go, oh man, I hope, I hope they play my song today. I hope that my jam, the jam that God and I have, I hope they play that today. Yes. Oh, who's leading worship? Oh, 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 it's Evan. Yes. Oh, man. I am going to love God so much today. They're playing my jam. And not only that, Evan is playing my jam. This is, oh, this is going to be so good. My soul is just going to rise and soar with Jesus. We get these like little superstitious things that we do. You know, we, we try to recreate spiritual experiences. We, we went on, an, on a retreat one time. We, we went out in the woods and, and, and we experienced God when we looked at a leaf. And then we go out in the woods and we're trying to find the same. What kind of, was that an oak leaf? What was that? What, 
Maybe it was poison ivy. I don't know. But whatever it was, you know, it's like we try to recreate. What boots was I wearing? Was I wearing my hiking boots or was it my sneakers? Maybe, I, or may, oh, that's right. God, God wants us to be on holy ground. I need to take my shoes off and walk barefoot. Right. We, we try to recreate these little things very superstitiously. And it's idolatry. It gets in the way. And an idol is anything that, that distracts us from our relationship with God and then sharing that with other people. You know, most of us, we don't wake up in the morning, roll over to our nightstand, kiss the wooden idol, you know, get down on our knees, bow to it three times, say a few lines, and then go about our day. We don't have these, these physical, tangible idols, you know, that we, that we think we worship. And so we just kind of, when the Bible talks about idolatry, we just kind of kick it to the curb. But maybe our, maybe our man-made idols look a little bit different Maybe they're, maybe they're about two and a half inches by about four and a half inches. And maybe they have a really shiny, glossy screen on them. And maybe the idol is, is, is that we, we check and, and, we, and we do all of these little you know, swoops with our hands in the air, interacting with cyberspace. And we're, and we're updating our status. And, and maybe our idolatry is, oh, look at how many people liked my status. Maybe our idolatry is, oh, well, I, I tagged somebody in that post. Why didn't they comment yet? You need to affirm me. Maybe our idolatry is, is, is in the ratification of people's view of us, even in godly things. Who's your audience? Who are you worshiping? Where do you get your security and your comfort from? These are things that I wrestle with in my heart. They're real because it's part of our humanity and in our senses to desire interaction. And God says, just watch out. It's not that those things are intrinsically evil. The material is not intrinsically evil. It's that it can rob you of seeing the glory of God because everywhere you go, God is with you. There is no place that you ever have been or ever will be that the presence of God is not there. You cannot hide from him. You cannot run far enough. You can't deny him enough. It doesn't matter what you believe because God believes in you and he's seeking you. He is everywhere. In the midst of this, he warns us against this idolatry because it's not just superstition, but it is also this heart condition, this longing, this desire to be filled and God says, you know what? I know who you are. And if you make an idol, you're making the idol in your image. See, God made us in his image. And ever since, we've been making him in our image. God made us in his image. And ever since, we've been trying to find tangible ways to experience God and to put him on our terms. We do a great job of humanizing God and deifying man. What does it look like? What does that feel like? What, what happens in those moments? We have to check ourselves. We, we have to ask ourselves in our heart, you know, kind of like, what's going on here? And the Bible gives us some instruction. You know, it says in Psalm 15, David writes, hey, the Gentiles, they, they make these, these idols out of, out of gold and out of silver. 
Now the work of men's hands, they have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they don't hear. Noses, but they can't smell. They have hands, but they don't handle. Feet, but they can't walk. Nor do they mutter through their throat. Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. It gives us this little bit of an insight that when we begin to try to form and fashion a God, what happens is we make God in our own image. And then in order to serve that God, we have to actually become lower than the God that we've made. What happens is, is God saying, no idols, because what you do is you make something tangible and physical that you focus your mind and your heart upon. And then what happens is you actually degrade yourself to try to look up to this thing that you yourself have created. No, you're made for so much more than that. You're made for a relationship with me. You're not supposed to degrade yourself. You're supposed to, as you worship me, you see just how amazing you are because you are made in the image of God. You don't even know how powerful you are. You don't even know how beautiful you are. You don't even know how worthy of love you are. And God says, please, please come to me and let me show you just how much I love you. Just how worthy you are of interacting with me because you're my creation and you have this intrinsic worth. So we have this tendency to contextualize God to be able to try to fit him inside of our experiences. And the reality is, is that when we make an idol, when we worship something else, when we try to superstitiously create spiritual experiences, then all it really does is reveal that I need something tangible to remind me that God is real. What we're saying with idolatry is, is I need something tangibly to remind me of a relationship with God, of the presence of God, instead of relating to God. I'm relating to a thing or to a person or to an object to remind me of God instead of what God asked me to do, which is to relate directly to him. And he says, don't do that. Watch out for that. It's a warning. Sometimes when we read these verses, you know, and we, and we see, I like the way the New, the New Living Translation puts it, you know, you must not have any other gods. You must not make idols. The next one, you must not misuse the name of the Lord. It's a little bit different than what we're used to, you know, thou shalt not, right? What does thou shalt not do inside of you? Does it do the same thing it does inside of me? Oh, but I shall, See, so it's the, the New Living Translation is a little softer. I like it. You must not. Oh, okay. See, because you, you must not do that. Please don't do that. It sounds a little bit better than, you know, if you cross the line, I'll kill you. The realities are the same. But it's in the way that we hear the voice of God. Because thou, you must not sounds like care. It sounds like a father, a loving father giving instruction to a child. You, you must not do that. You, you, don't you know that you know, drinking three Powerades a day is just filling you up with lots of extra sugar and dyes and it's gonna kill you? Don't you know that, that eating all of that processed food is just slowly destroying your body? 
Don't you know that, that drinking so much soda and not drinking water? Don't you know that too much caffeine? Oh, should I stop yet? Don't you know that? Okay. Don't you know you, you must not do that? You must learn some wisdom in how to live in your being. So that next one was, you must not take the name of the Lord God in vain. And this isn't just simply like, you know, blasphemy. And, and this, is, this is talking about something deeper. You know, when we pray, we, we say, you know, in Jesus' name, amen. You know, and that's how we know that Jesus, God hears us, right? <laughs> Wrong. <laughs> yeah. No, God doesn't hear us because of some script that we, that we say. The perfect prayer when Jesus taught us how to pray, you know, our Father who art in heaven, God doesn't hear you anymore when you say those particular words. It wasn't a formula. It wasn't a, it wasn't a script. It wasn't something to be repeated like a mantra that loses its power. No, in Jesus' name means I'm praying the things that I believe Jesus would pray. I am praying according to God's will. The things that I'm praying, I have thought through and I have tempered and I have, in my honesty and in my authenticity with God, my prayers are true. They're not just complaining. They're not just about my need. They're not just about my own condition, but they, they depend upon the glory of God to show up in them. In Jesus' name, doing something in God's name, not taking the name of the Lord in vain means that the things that I do, that I say God has led me in, I can find and align with his will. If I do something and I say, hey, God is leading me to do this, and then I open up the Bible, or a friend comes to me and say, hey, you feel like God is leading you to this, but here in the Bible, this is directly what God says you must not do, then that's blasphemy. You're, not, you're doing it in the name of God, but, but it isn't God's will. Remember, God has given us this instruction from Genesis to Revelation. And so many times in our idolatry or, or in this tension of, of taking the name of the Lord God in vain, in our relationship with God, we, we try to contextualize him to our, our experiences. And we say, well, the things that I feel inside, the things that I'm experiencing, they're so natural. They're so normal. They, they feel like they're a core part of me. And yet when I open up God's word and I see that they are not his design, I have to say, wow, am I going to follow after him or am I going to do what seems right to me? Am I going to let God judge me and bring me to his version of health or am I going to judge God and say, God, your words are not true? Now here's the kicker. Because in the word of God, it says that God esteems his word even higher than his name. So we have this, one of the commandments is, is don't take the name of the Lord God in vain. And at the same time, God says, but my word, Genesis to Revelation, it's even more important than that. I don't really, ultimately, you know, like what you say about me is one thing, but, but my word is gonna last forever. My word is gonna stand. Will you align with this instruction or will you war against me? Will you set yourself up as God and say, well, the things that I feel are right. The things that I experience in my life, my natural tendencies, those are okay. 
This is a question every single one of us must answer in every single part of our being. What, our, what we think our spirit is saying, what we, what we think our heart is feeling, what we think our mind is thinking, and the things that we're doing, aligning them to the truth of God's word. Now, all of this just exists because God has told us that in him we live and move and have our being. In Acts chapter 17, we get this glimpse. You know, as Paul is, is standing up on Mars Hill and he's speaking to all of these Greeks in a different culture and he says, He is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples and human hands can't serve his needs for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything and he satisfies every need. From one man he created all the nations, Abraham. And throughout the whole earth, he decided beforehand when they would rise and fall and he determined their boundaries. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. And as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. We're his children. He is our father. If you make a God, then you bow to serve it. If we form and fashion, you know, this God in our own hands, in our own minds, if we, if we listen to the word of God, he says, you, you can't serve God and mammon. You can't serve God and money. Do we actually believe those things? I had a conversation with a guy earlier this week, and as we were sitting around, the name of this other guy came up in our conversation in a good way. And we were just thinking, we were just talking about the, the wonderful things that we see bursting forth out of this guy. And he's very wealthy. And it, we were both just kind of sat there in this space of just going, it is amazing that this man of so much resource financially, so much influence in the world, as he comes to Christ, his mind is completely focused. And everything that he has is just kind of laid bare. And he's been generous. And he doesn't hold on to it tightly. And his value is focusing his mind and his heart on Christ. And his joy is not in the toys that he has or the new things that he hopes to get. But his joy is in the things that he is learning as he's running towards God. There's a rich man that came to Jesus. He said, I kept all the commandments. And Jesus said, really? Yeah, I kept them all. And, and then Jesus just kind of referred to the very first one, you know, love God with everything that you have. And he said, if you really want to love God, sell everything that you have and just come and follow me. And the man turned away and left because he was rich. And because his heart, the affections of his heart had been captured with tangible things. You don't have to be wealthy for your heart to be captured with tangible things. But the true blessings of this world, the true riches of this world are not in the things that are seen. They're in the things that are experienced in relationship with God and people. Faithfulness, joy, hope, peace, love. And here's where this whole thing kind of shifts a little bit as we wind down in these last couple minutes. The next one, remember to observe the Sabbath day. Now, this was something that was real specific to the nation of Israel. It was a covenant simply with God's people, Israel. You remember when Jesus walked the earth, 
What was the one thing that he just kept having conflict with the religious rulers about? He kept breaking the Sabbath, right? He walk around and his disciple with his disciples and they're plucking, you know, heads of grain and eating it, you know, on the Sabbath. And the religious rulers are like, "What are you doing? You're breaking the law." And Jesus would come to them and say, "Hey, is it lawful to heal somebody? Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath?" And then he'd heal somebody. And they'd go, and then they were the religious leaders were telling all of the people, "Hey, come and get healed the other six days of the week." Now, why was that? Because what Jesus was saying and what Jesus was experiencing was this. The law was dead. The law brought death. See, Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was meant to be a blessing. As they're wandering through the desert, as they're going about their work, as they're working in these hard lives, God says, just hit the pause button. I mean, how awesome would it be if we could just stay in bed one day a week? I mean, I'm all for it. Let's take a vote. I mean, do we have that power? Can we do that? How awesome would it be? How, how rested and, and relaxed would we be if one day a week we just simply said, it's off. It doesn't matter who calls it doesn't matter what burns down. Like we are just going to relax and enjoy each other's company and focus our minds and hearts on God. What a beautiful gift. What would happen if we operated out of that rest, out of that peace? Statistically, Americans are all sleep deprived. A bunch of insomniacs that take medicine so that we can sleep because we're stressed out and we're anxious and we're worried and we're too busy and we don't take care of ourselves. Maybe we need to implement the law. And Jesus says, no. The reason that, that, we, that we don't have to worry about this piece of it is because that was a covenant for a period of time with a particular people. And Jesus messed it all up when he came because he said, I am your Sabbath. I am your rest. My peace, I leave with you. I give you my spirit to guide you into all truth, to comfort you, to walk beside you so that I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. I'm your rest. It's not a day of the week. It doesn't matter if it's Saturday or Sunday or because of your work schedule. It's from, you know, 4 a.m. on Tuesday until 4 a.m. on Wednesday. It doesn't matter. No, it's not about a day and a time and a place. It is about relationship with Jesus. He is our rest. And so out of all of these Ten Commandments, this is the one that the New Testament doesn't back up in terms of the law. God doesn't care about the day. He cares about your heart and your spirit being in tune with Him. And these last couple, honor your father and mother. Now, kids in the room, uh, your parents are going to disappoint you, okay? <laughs> they're going to make the wrong decision at times. They're going to they're gonna hurt your feelings. They're going to they're gonna say something out of frustration and they, they may not say they're sorry 100% of the time. They may not humble themselves. Guess what? You still have to honor your father and mother. You adults who have fathers and mothers, you still have to honor your father and mother. I remember a time when I was about, about 18 years old that my mom came to me and she gave me some, some insights. 
She sat me down and said, I want to have a conversation. And I listened to her. And at the end of the conversation, I said, hey, mom, I really appreciate you speaking into my life. I really appreciate, you know, you sharing your opinion with me. I'm going to do what I want to do. And she just kind of looked at me. Now, what would happen if I'd said, mom, you know what? I am an adult, I'm a full-grown man, and I will make my own decisions, thank you very much. If I want your opinion, I'll ask you for it. Is that honoring my mother? No. But listening and being respectful, it doesn't matter what the input is. Honor your father and mother. It is not negotiable. This is something that we do to live out respect in the world, to be ambassadors, to be lights to be salt, to pull out the God flavors of the world. Now, parents, be honorable. Be honorable. Your children, they're born in spiritual darkness. They can't see the glory of God. They see you. And your job is to reflect the glory of God to them to show them all of the beauty that God is, to show them light and purity and joy and humility. Your job is when you screw up to get on your knees and ask for them to forgive you because you've done wrong. Your job is to show them humility and grace and peace. You can only do that as you experience it from your heavenly father because he is always with us, ever serving us ever meeting every single need that we could possibly have. Jesus summed up these next ones as love your neighbor. And I don't think they need a lot of commentary, but you must not murder. It's a pretty good one. The problem is we've all broken it. We may not have pulled the trigger, but Jesus said if you, if you have hate, if you have unrighteous anger in your heart, then you're a murderer. The next one, you know, you must not commit adultery. And Jesus said that if you have lust in your heart towards someone, that you've committed adultery. The great equalizer here, God, Jesus just comes and says, hey, you've all all messed up. You must not steal. Pretty self-explanatory, right? You know, does that mean that I shouldn't print out personal things when I'm at work? Maybe. Do you have permission to do that? Is that stealing? Where is it that we we get away with things, that we justify things, that we rob, that we take resources that have not been entrusted to us and we use them for our own goods and we're stealing? You must not testify falsely against your neighbor. God God desires truth in the inward parts. The belt of truth to just be at the very center of our being and burst forth life. And then this last one. Shall not covet. Coveting is, is, is one of the most deceitful things, one of the most subversive pieces to all of our life. When we look at someone else and we begin to compare, when we look at someone else and we go, oh man, they just have a great marriage. Oh, why can't my husband be like that? They, they seem to love each other so much, you know. Why can't my wife do that? When we look at people and we go, man, I love God. They love God. Why, why, do they have, why do they have a beach house and a boat? And I'm just trying to eat. 
Like what, what is going on? And we begin to covet. And it's this thing inside of our hearts because what happens is, is covetousness is fantasy. Covetousness is fantasy. It's a, it's a lustful desire that it turns into imagination and it begins to rob us of contentment and appreciation and joy and it will kill our relationships, guys. It will kill our relationships and in its ultimate irony, as it stirs up the I want, it just continues because the more that you want, the more that you want. And God says, you must not covet. Learn godliness with contentment. All of these things, all of these instructions, they're not there to be law. They're not there to be a checklist. They're not there to go, oh, well, I measured up today. Awesome. No. They're there drawing us into a deeper relationship with God. He respected and honored and loved his people enough to show them what the right way is. And I pray that this week that, that you would spend some time going through this, maybe around the dinner table with your family, maybe with a group of friends, or maybe in your growth group, or maybe all of the above, to be able to stir up deeper conversations and say, where does my life break the you must not? Not because there's condemnation, and not because it should produce fear or anxiety or worry, but because if we love God, then we desire to keep his commands. If we love God, then we will follow his word. If we really love God, then we will lay aside all things that seem innately natural and say, God, you define me because you are God and I am not.